following episode of In the Belly of the Beast was recorded on April 14, 2022. We're sorry it's taken us so long to get it to you, but we're happy we can get it to you now. It's still a timely and important episode on abolition democracy, something that has become even more important to talk about and think about in the last couple of months. So here it is. You're listening to In the Belly of the Beast. My name is Ryan Sigelko, and I teach in the Theology Department and American Culture and Difference at the University of St. Thomas, and I'm joined with some friends. Hi, I'm Amy Finnegan. I teach Justice and Peace Studies, and I'm also affiliated with American Culture and Difference. Hi, I'm Kanishka Chowdhury. I teach in the English Department, and I too am affiliated with the American Culture and Difference Program. He's the director. He's, <laughs> he's being modest. I'm Todd Lawrence. I teach in the English department, and I, too, am affiliated with American Culture and Difference. So today we're going to talk about abolition, and specifically this political framework, uh, abolition democracy. In the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we heard calls, not just in Minneapolis and in the Twin Cities, but really globally, for the abolition of the police, or to defund the police. Right, and this language of abolition has this rich history and and you know, historical there's historical specificity to abolitionism and certainly the idea of abolishing the police prior to twenty twenty was kind of a marginal kind of political perspective. And nowadays it seems like it's sort of on the map. We're having conversations about what does it mean or what would it mean to defund the police or abolish the police. People self-proclaimed to be abolitionists. So we thought we'd enter into a conversation about a bit about the history of this idea of abolitionism, the political framework that it might represent, specifically out of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, who wrote uh, an amazing text called Black Reconstruction, where he develops this idea a bit with regard to the history of abolitionism and the abolition of slavery in the United States in that context. So I've asked Kanishka to, to, to share a bit about the context, like how that appears in Black Reconstruction and Du Bois' work. And then we're just going to enter into a conversation, the four of us, around what abolition democracy looks like, what that might look like today in our own work, in our own lives, in our own society, and in, in the context in which we currently live. Uh, thanks, Ray. Um, this is a tremendously exciting opportunity. It's um, Black Reconstruction is one of my favorite texts and probably, I, th- I would argue, one of the most important texts of the 20th century. And I'd just like to begin by reading w- something that a lot of people don't know, which is the subtitle of the book. And it is Black Reconstruction in America, but then the subtitle is An Essay Towards a History of the Part Which Black Folk Played in the Attempt to Reconstruct Democracy in America, 1860 to 1880. And I think this is a a vital point, and that is Du Bois was not just writing a history of the Reconstruction. He was fundamentally changing the focus of that history. Uh, For the longest time, you know, right from Reconstruction on to the 1930s when he wrote the book, the Dunning School, famous historian in Columbia, had written this entire history of Reconstruction where African-Americans were basically written out of it. 
And they were sort of depicted in this very, very, again, Jim Crow kind of way of being irresponsible, unready for leadership, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all of you know about the birth of the nation, birth of the nation by Griffith and that kind of history where um, the South were seen as uh, sort of the, the lost cause and all that sort of stuff. So what Du Bois did is he went back to that period, right? starting with the Civil War and, and, and 10 years later. And what he showed is that this was the first real, genuine attempt to construct equal democracy in America. And that black folk played a huge role in it. Uh, what was really revolutionary about his reading of that time is that he said what basically African-Americans did, slaves did at that point, was to declare a general strike. And he used the language of, you know, the Marxist language of a strike by them leaving the plantations by joining the Union Army, by, you know, becoming uh, sort of actively involved in the defeat of the South, right? And then after the war, playing a very active role in reconstructing the political culture of the South. But going back to abolition democracy, I think the key here is that for Du Bois, uh, the abolition of slavery was never going to be enough. Hmm. The structures of slavery, the structures that had, you know, buoyed up slavery, uh, the white supremacist logic of slavery, all of those things had to be demolished. Now, I have a really interesting quote from uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, which for me says a lot about what you know, Du Bois was doing, so I'll just uh, read that quickly. And she says about Du Bois's project, quote, since slavery ending one day doesn't tell you anything about the next day, Du Bois set out to show what the next day and days thereafter looked like during the revolutionary period of radical reconstruction. So abolition is a theory of change. It's a theory of social life. It's about making things. And I think this is really crucial that uh, it's not just about getting rid of something. It's about constructing something new and what this democracy would look like. Now, for a very brief period, this seemed possible. Even, even black and white cross-racial solidarity amongst workers, white workers, poor white workers, and uh, free black slaves seemed possible. And certainly we know the efforts of uh, Sumner and Stevens and people like that who tried to enact some of these policies and the amendments and all of that. But ultimately, this is a project that was not going to succeed because both the Northern Capital and the southern plantation economy did not want two things. And in this, they were united. One is they did not want to see a radical redistribution of wealth or a redistribution of land so that workers of both races, actually, became more powerful because this would not suit the interests of any of these ruling classes, right? And the second was, of course, cross-racial you know, solidarity. This would have killed off you know, any, any prospect of then carrying on this oppressive kind of system. So Northern Capital for a little while went along with um, some of the changes, you know, the Freedmen's Bureau and all of that, uh, because they were afraid that the Southern plantation owners would go back to the old system, and that wasn't really ideal for the expansion of capital. I mean, let's not forget that Civil War was about Northern Capital having access to Southern markets and so on and so forth and, and Southern labor. And, you know, at some point, it became more profitable to have wage labor than have slave labor, right? So the North went along as long as it was necessary, but then they abandoned this project for their own reasons, right? And so abolition never really worked because at its best, it was an attempt to democratize American capitalism, right? 
And really, if you take that to its logical end, what you'd have to do is demolish white supremacy because American capitalism functions on racial difference, that there has to be a racial capitalism in order for profits to be uh, accumulated. So the ruling class was never going to let abolition work. And so, of course, we know what happened and Reconstruction uh, failed and Jim Crow came back and so on and so forth. Now, the question here is that Du Bois is writing this at a time when he's well aware of what's going on in the country in the 1930s, right? And the same exact thing's going on in the sense this is also a time for radical optimism. There's a lot of uh, social movements uh, coming out of the Depression era, but at the same time, he's seeing the same kind of state actions which are benefiting certain groups of people. Now, remember, in 1862, we have the Homestead Act, right? And the state gives away millions of acres of land to white settlers, land which is not theirs to give in the first place. It's native land. And so the same state then reneges on its promise to redistribute land to freed slaves. And guess what? The same exact thing happens in 1934 with the FHA, the Federal Housing Act, right? Where loans and mortgages are given primarily to white people. In fact, George uh, Lipsitz reminds us that between 1934 and 1968, 98% of the loans were given to white people. Now, this is probably one of the greatest <laughs> distribution of assets to one group of people. So it's, it's very important to remember that even though Du Bois is writing about the 1860s and the early 1870s, he's well aware that this whole streak of American capitalism continues, right? And the same patterns are continuing. So this project, which is ongoing, and this is why we're talking about it today, is how do we create a system where we don't just get rid of things, get rid of oppressive structures, but then create potentially liberating moments that can be sustainable. So when it comes to defunding the police, is that enough? Does that change the relationship between the state and the citizen and the subject? Uh, when we talk about prison reform, is having lower sentences or better prisons the solution to carceral structures? Or do we need to create a whole different way to think about quote-unquote punishment and all of that? So I think abolition democracy has enormous consequences from you know, going back to the Civil War and Reconstruction. But think of the second Reconstruction, you know, which was in the 1960s, and what happened there as well. And now we have the potential for a third Reconstruction, you know, uh, the Poor People's March and all kinds of movements that have potentially talking about a third Reconstruction. So it's very important for those of us who are actively thinking and trying to enact change to get the wisdom from these movements. So, you know, think of the Kumbaya River Collective, right? Their manifesto in the 1970s. There have been many, many attempts to create this kind of democracy. So how do we proceed? And given the historical context, how can we use that context to, to inform our own actions? So again, I, I can go on like this forever, but there are three other people here who would love to talk. So I will pause and hand over. Are you sure you want to do that? Because I was like mesmerized. I know, right? <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it's it's not story hour with Uncle Kanishka. Uh, are, I would go. I would. We're actually having a conversation here, so I'm, I'm going to. No, that stop was helpful, though. I think the historical context is helpful. I I really like what you're saying there about Du Bois. Like he's responding to kind of political issues of his time. 
he's gone back to this. So this is not merely a history, mm-hmm. right? This is also about the present for him in, in the 1930s and what's happening then. But also, like, it seems like there's this window, right, that he's trying to get at, like, like looking at, okay, what were the decisions made? Why did this war happen? Like, what, what was abolition about? How do we reimagine and rethink this history so that it, so to help inform the present? I guess that, that's right. what I find really compelling about right. this abolition democracy. It becomes an attempt to do history in and for the present in terms of a, a new kind of politics for the present. That's old. That in some ways has a, its own tradition, its own logic. Right. I really appreciate you what you laid about um, W.B. Dubois saying the absence of present uh, slavery is not enough. Um, and it makes we, Ruth Wilson Gilmore said something similar that abolition is about presence, not absence. It's about building life affirming institutions. And I think, I, I don't know, I find a lot of hope in that. <laughs> and I think it, it expands us from thinking just about the carceral institutions like policing and prison to the other ways that people in our communities can have their needs met. And I think ultimately it, it suggests that abolition is about creating, I think centering really an ethic of care care. We were talking Mm -hmm. about care just a little bit ago. And I I mean, I I feel like in my learning about abolition and like the work that organizers are doing in neighborhoods in Minneapolis now is around trying to connect uh, neighbors to each other so that they can help each other when things come up and, and just be in relationship, really. I mean, to really strengthen relationship. That is like really, really at the core of this. Because I, I mean, the thinking there is if we can if people's needs are met and we can meet each other's needs in community, we don't need to call a punitive institution that's going to come and take us away or kill us or hurt us. Lock us up. Lock us up. Kick us out. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't do that in our own families, right? Like we wouldn't call the cops on our kids or something like you. You deal with those issues because you have relationships with the people um, who are involved. And I've heard Janelle Austin talks about this and you said like Ruthie Gilmore talks about this. They all, all the abolitionists talk about that we need to build those relationships and make them stronger so that we can rely on those rather than um, the force of the state to make us feel safe. But I was thinking, you know, thinking about Du Bois, you know, writing about his own time as he's writing this, this history and then thinking about our own time. Like I'm so, it, it sort of flummoxed me like, and at the same time, is totally predictable. Like the moment that we're in right now, which is one in which less than two years ago, we were talking about um, abolition in ways that I had never heard pre- people talk about it before. Now we're talking about um, not defunding the police, but refunding and overfunding the police that, mm-hmm. um, to, to levels that we've never seen before, right? And I'm sort of thinking about what is it that caused that, that change to happen? And it, it made me think a little bit about how, you know, just in as I've learned about and thought about abolition with you all over the past year and a half or something, about how much it depends upon a, a future vision and a wider vision outside of oneself, right? And a connected vision, a vision that connects you to other people, as we were just talking about. And that these moments where, you know, even if we go back to like the end of Reconstruction, or if you go back to the 60s, like what ends up happening to really to end those those moments of transformation or those periods of transformation is this kind of like narrowing of the vision that people have about what could possibly be. And so you go back to the individual or you go back to the sort of tribalism or, you know, these sort of small groups and in protecting interests, property, et cetera. And to me that says that we need to sort of keep our vision wide and we need to keep it 
focused on future possibilities because to build a society or a community in which we don't have to, we don't, our first impulse isn't to call the cops or our first impulse isn't to clutch our bag or our first impulse isn't to build a fence or build a, a wall or something like that, that we have to think about each other differently and we have to think about each other as being connected to each other or being in relation with each other, you know, so I think that's a big part of it too. And to radical imagination. Exactly. I mean, that's really, I feel like, I do feel, this is where I get really inspired about this stuff. So Angela Davis wrote in Abolition Democracy, how do we imagine a better world and raise the questions that permit us to see beyond the given? And that is hard though, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that there's such an invitation there. But I think it's really, I mean, in my experience, like in the classroom, these frameworks that we're operating in, like the carceral state that we live in, settler colonialism, it's so hard for us to imagine what it could be mm -hmm. and how it should be. But how do we like unlock our our brains to do that? I think when we can do that and we can like let folks and our, and give permission to ourselves to really to 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 imagine <laughs> and have that vision, it's so it's so inspiring. It's so hope filled. It's so life giving. And I and we have to be able to imagine to get there. Yeah. Because if we can't imagine, then we're like we we remain locked up. I think our our, our minds being locked up to like a, a a future where we don't call the police. Like we'll never have that. Right. And yeah, yeah, and I think Davis said that we have to imagine that the future is possible. Right. Yes, and uh, unless we um, unless we think that, then then our actions are going to be meaningless. I mean, I think the thing we really have to fight against is the fact that there's a huge amount of propaganda that is designed to make us think this is future is not possible, mm -hmm. that there is no way to live other than through a profit economy, that commercial transactions are the only way we make sense of each other. Right. And and that's ideological war, but it's also a massive sort of material war. Right. I mean, war begets war. And, and we've learned that the only way to operate is through violence and through force and through structures that re reproduce those. And, and that's it's not so much that the alternatives are not there, because there are many models across the planet of people living in communities and societies that are egalitarian, but we don't know about them. And there's a reason we don't know about them, because they don't want us to know there is another way of living. Because then what will happen? Who, well, who's going to buy all this crap <laughs> that, that comes in these giant ships from across the ocean? Things we don't need, things we can do without, things that are trashed in three days and thrown into a landfill. This is a system that's works only because we believe we need to live in this way and there's no other way to live. And so we have to make these alternatives transparent. They're not utopian imaginary things out there in some science fiction novel. They do exist. They exist in indigenous communities in Bolivia. They exist in, you know, the way people live across the globe. Maybe they're not highlighted or written about, and they certainly don't appear in the front page of the New York Times, but they do exist. Well, and even in our ordinary life, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, like, I mean, people cross borders all the time, like people act as if borders don't exist all the time. I mean, and I think there are ways that we can look to our ordinary relations to one another. I mean, this, we were talking about this in class earlier, Todd and I had a class together. It's like, yeah, do you, do you, you know, do you think there's something, I mean, there is this sort of like deeply ingrained or this notion, this kind of theological notion of like original sin that everyone is just sort of depraved and... Mm. 
you know, if we don't have the state there, if we don't have these structures in place, right, that we're, we're going we're gonna to kill ourselves or something like this. You know, we need the police. Otherwise, we'd just be out there slaughtering each other. Mm-hmm. It's like, what a bizarre way to think. <laughs> like, I, I'm not going to do that. I don't think most of us are going to do that. Like, it's not something within nature to slaughter, to want to slaughter each other. Right. I mean, I guess. And so how do we how do we think? I mean, clearly we're, you know, there's brokenness. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not saying we're all angels and we're going to walk about like and we, you know, we are in need. We are as human beings. We are in need of structures. You know, we are in in need of institutions and infrastructure to to extend care in in ways that can meet the needs of, of, of all sorts of people. We need to be in conversation. We are interdependent and we are dependent on the land. I mean, you know, being human is complicated. It's complex. Right. But that doesn't mean and we're going to fail each other. Right. But that doesn't mean that we're really out just to like, you know, slaughter each other. And we need the state to protect us from each other. And we need police to protect us from each other. And we need prisons to keep the bad people out. But it's Mm -hmm. amazing to me how easy it is for us to think like, oh, well, they're bad. And so we need to put them into prison or and that's when the fears come up. Right. For people like, well, if we don't have prisons, if we don't have police, you know, what do we do about the really, really, really bad people. And it's like, I, I mean, I know there are people that have done really bad things and there are people that we need, we need to hold people accountable. Right. So that's, that's an important question to be asking. But it's also like, why is that, why do we think, like, why don't we think about the structures that create the pro, some of the problems in our lives, right? And like asking why people make the decisions they make, start digging deeper into these questions that, then we start getting to the structural questions, I think, and and what you know, what does what does security really look like, and who are we really afraid of? I mean, that's the thing, you know, like we were talking about in class today. Um, you look at the you look at the world as it is right now, and you make you come to the conclusion that that's the way that people are, right? Like instead of looking at the way that the world is right now and seeing that as the result of uh, of a system that we've created, right, of a way of living which demands of us that we behave this way that we exploit each other that we that we hoard that we you know deprive each other in order to survive right and then we look at ourselves and say well that must be that's what we are that's what we're like and that's why this sort of future kind of vision is absolutely necessary because we can't look at what we're what the majority of people are doing right now and say um this is then we need to build a world in response to that because we'll build the wrong world in response to that because we've already built a world that creates that right so i think we have to either as kanishka is saying like um see the world more clearly than we do because every kind of representation of what the world is mostly is about how depraved and awful and terrible we are and all of that but we also have to sort of find those examples of what the possibilities are i mean i i always think about what it must have been like and obviously this is like something that um, is, is impossible to imagine, but what it must have been like to be an enslaved person on a plantation. And if someone came to you and said, there's a thing called freedom. <laughs> and, you know, Fred Douglas talks about this. Like he didn't know what freedom was. Um, he read it in a book. He read about it in a book, The Columbian Order. And then he started to think like, oh, wait, this is something that I could have. This is something that exists somewhere. And so you had to like imagine something that didn't seem to be possible because you couldn't see it anywhere. Except once you started to have the concept in your head, now you can look around and see like, oh wait, there are these moments where we have freedom here. Mm-hmm. And we could have more of that if we went somewhere else. 
if we built something together some other place, right? So you can't like look at this sort of present moment and have that be the evidence of what we're capable of doing, being, or creating. Yeah, I mean, just a simple example that since Rai mentioned security, what if instead of thinking of security automatically as, oh, am I safe and going to be robbed? Uh, we thought of security as a simple illness not getting us bankrupt. Yeah. Right? I mean, what if that was our definition of what security meant? what a human right meant, right? That even a simple thing, I mean, we hear of people with insurance getting bankrupt, mm -hmm. let alone people who are uninsured. Why isn't that the primary way we think about our security? Mm -hmm. What are the odds that that'll happen to one of us as opposed to being robbed, right? And yet, why do we spend so much money on police and jails mm -hmm. when uh, people are getting bankrupt because they happen to have an illness, which is no fault of theirs? Yeah, I'm thinking about like, the kind of crisis we're living in right now and like how crises, I mean, like the pandemic crises seem to have like, we can respond to crises in different ways, right? We can respond to crises like by extending care to one another and by like rethinking how we live in the world. The pandemic kind of forced that, or we can respond to crises through panic. Right. And in, in within a crisis situation, you want to respond to what's before you, Right. I mean, this, uh, <laughs> whenever we like, I always say that Marcia, my wife, she only cries. The only time she ever cries is over spilled milk. <laughs> uh, she'll spill milk <laughs> and then, and, 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 and then, or I'll spill milk and she'll be like, ah, you know, and I'm really slow to like respond to it. And I'm thinking about, <laughs> I guess like, yeah, I, I know I need to respond quickly. I know I need to like address this problem, but sometimes in the, in those moments of crises, like we'll respond by like, you know, we need we need a gun. We need to militarize. We need to like we respond in this sort of sense of a need for security, a need for a response. I don't know. I guess I'm trying to think about maybe I'm not being super clear right now. How do we think about the current crises that we're living through? Some of the some of the responses we're seeing to the crisis, whether that's calls to defund the police, calls for abolition, calls for a new world, or whether that's on the other side, authoritarianism, more walls, more guns more police and prisons. How do we negotiate or how do we think through and act in this time of crisis? Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. does abolition democracy look like right now? I, I think one thing I'd just add from Du Bois, and I think this is generally true of, you know, whether it's Miriam Kaba or Gilmore or Davis or whoever you're reading, is that a way to keep the totality in, in place and attend to the sort of micro elements. Um, if I may, I just want to read a section from Gilmore again. And she says, um, gentrification, auto or steel manufacturing, coal mining, gold mining, conflict minerals, fracking, new shipping technologies, robotics, commodity chains, finance capital. The challenge is to keep the entirety of carceral geographies rather than only their prison or even law enforcement aspects connected but without collapsing or reducing various aspects into each other. And I find that really helpful in the sense that what is the connection between, you know, fracking and gentrification? And uh, ordinarily you'd say, I, I don't see an obvious connection, but those connections exist and it's part of this whole cultural geography that she's talking about. So how do we then act in our local communities with the uh, immediate issues that are confronting us but yet keep in mind that what basically abolition means is creating the environment for all of these structures to be demolished ultimately, right? 
in a world where coal mining, fracking, gentrification, all of these things she's talking about don't exist or, or don't or cease to be mm-hmm. and what we put in place in, in, in instead. So I, I'd say keep that tension alive, you know, this, this idea of a totality, but then also the immediate thing that one we are focusing on. And I think this, as, as, as teachers, I think this is a helpful way to think about it because students would get overwhelmed if you say, oh, it's all this huge thing we have to somehow transform. But if you say, no, it's connected, but, but we can also look at what these connections are and how I can enact change at some level and so on and so well, forth. Well, it's precisely because these things are connected that, you're, you know, that local actions matter, right? I mean, be- because there, there are these networks, right? right? These things are not separate issues or, um, yeah. I think another tension in there um, is around pace. So it feels pretty overwhelming and urgent and like, like especially when crises are happening, it's like, dang, we got to do something like yesterday. Like, you know, it feels really intense and fast and urgent is the word that comes to mind. But I, I think that the invitation in this work is to slow down, um, especially in the relationship piece. Because I, I think to really build like ethic of care in our communities, it it doesn't happen overnight, right? People talk about that we move at the speed of trust. Like it, it does, like for us to feel like our neighbor's have our backs and can show up for us when we when we need it and that we can do that for them like that's not going to happen after like one block party mm-hmm. <laughs> right like it's going to take a while I don't know so I feel I, but there's a tension there because there's a lot of crises and and lives that are at stake now and so I, I feel like I feel tension around the pace like doing moving or with urgency moving slowly our lives are structured to keep us separated from one another and to, to actually the, the, the speed at which our lives are structured because of, of the demands of capitalism and the ways that we live in this world make it difficult actually to connect with others and build that kind of trust. Yeah. So we need to slow down actively in, in order to like stop the, the wheel from turning, right? Like totally. and, and to take that time and say, wait, no, this time is, this, this time is not my bosses. Mm-hmm. This time is not... The time for capital to extract from me. This time, this time that is called my life, our life, mm-hmm. our shared existence, mm-hmm. needs to be time spent in caring for one another and getting to know each other, uh, not fear each other. My God, we fear each other, mm-hmm. and and that's not something natural. That's that that's that's structural. That's it's it's our social, political, economic world that I think creates that that fear. Well, the, I mean, there's legitimate fears around safety and things like that, I suppose. But I think the majority of the fears are around stuff. It's around, it's around space. It's around, you know, it's like, this is mine. I have to protect it. We were talking about this in the, the classes today. You know, we, we, we switched classes or we came to each other's classes today as part of a, a great program we have on campus called World Cafe, which Amy is Amy runs, and so um, uh, it was a really great opportunity to talk to each other's classes today. But um, we were we were sort of talking about that, like what is the fear? What is the fear about? Right? What is it around? And I think we concluded that it's it's so much around um, resources and stuff, and it's not even most of the time it's not even about safety. You know, I mean, I think there there are definitely you know, fears around safety, but like you wouldn't even have that fear if you didn't have to go to work, if you didn't have, you know, like that, if your time wasn't being, being directed in a certain way. Um, and I think about, you know, one of the things I was thinking when you were talking rise about like these sort of 
alternative spaces and alternative ways of um, being with each other in the world that sort of get us out of those prescribed kind of ways. Like the majority of people are around each other, other people mostly at work, right? Or, you know, in these places where everything is sort of dictated to them. But I think about a place like George Floyd Square and like how that was a sort of how it came out of a lynching. But then people took the space and made it into a place where there was mutual aid, there was health care, there was communion, there was um, sadness, but there was also healing. I mean, people were just like, what kind of, what kind of place, other place in the city is like that where you just went uh, there in the middle of the day thinking like there could be a bunch of people there doing whatever that I could join in and feel community with them. And we not just that, they were yeah. giving away lots of important yeah, I mean, they were giving away food. They were giving away. What's uh, the first place in the cities where you could get a yeah. get get vaccinated? Library, library, library yeah. and yeah. I mean, you actually went mm. there and you saw things that people needed for their ordinary daily life. Things we can do together right. that we don't like. We think we need the state to do for us. We think that we need some sort of yeah. like institutions to do for us. We can do them ourselves, mm -hmm. yeah. and if we do them ourselves, then we can do them in a way that doesn't require us to exploit somebody else to make them happen, right? Right. Gotcha. And we've seen this over and over again, you know, in, in disaster areas when FEMA doesn't show up. Guess what? Who looks out? I mean, this you've seen this in your mm -hmm. own work, yep. right? Yep. Who looks out for each other? I mean, hey, <laughs> the government goes a-missing, you mm -hmm. know. Right. And About the Black Panther Party? Yep. I mean, that was critical, right? Mutual aid, mm -hmm. education, all these things. I mean, this is the, like, the, the imagining and the actually the practice of the new the where we want to go right i mean that example and i have george floyd square and i think i think similarly i think i shared that on the other podcast but like in some of the water protector camps up north last summer i felt a similar kind of like this is where this was like a vision i remember waking up at the shell river and it was like peep some people were doing body work there was a community kitchen we had slept outside there was like place to just be in the water there was like a medical area i mean it was like we there was a way that people had created to take care of each other. Folks who had money brought extra food, brought extra resources. It was it's so inspiring to see that unfold and 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 be, and and to have a taste of it, to be part of it. That is I don't know, that's the the possibility. That does give me hope and that knowing that these these things are happening. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing I would say about urgency, I guess, is that one of the things of course Du Bois didn't have to take didn't take into account for obvious reasons, but I think it's climate change, right? I mean, what is happening now, there is a huge urgency because people's lives are getting upended yeah. because of the way the environment is affecting disproportionately, as we all know, the poorest communities in the world. So I, I guess I would agree with you in terms of social relations take time to work through and you, these things don't happen overnight. But, you know, it's just... There is there is yeah. some urgency about this. Totally, that's yeah. the just not sustainable. I mean, to, I, I mean, I mean, yeah. I talk about utopia. It's like it's utopian to think that the the way that we're living now, the way that our world is structured, is sustainable. It's utopian. We are absolutely destroying the earth. We need. We must change. Everything must change. Like we need a revolution. I mean, we just do a, a revolution that's rooted in care, a care for the planet, care for one another. We we absolutely need it. If we don't, if we don't, if we don't move toward this other world now, and that can, that movement toward this other world now doesn't mean do it in a way that like, 
you know, is sloppy. I mean, there's going to be mistakes, right? Because, yeah, but it, it does mean, but we do have to take those risks, I guess, right? If we, don't, if we don't take the risk to move toward a different kind of world now, then we're not going to have a planet, you know? And then we're all going to, you know, we're all going to suffer. So I guess this is, this is the kind of question. It's like, it's not that, yeah, I mean, the, the utopian idea is to like think that guns and a bigger military and more police and more borders and, you know, if we just trust in our Lord and Savior, it's Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Elon Musk. Or Elon Musk, yeah, who apparently is going to be, uh, he wants to buy Twitter, I read this morning. Twitter, yeah. I mean, it, it's like, that's utopian. Yeah. Yeah. I, can I offer a, a little piece that I found really inspiring from Miriam Kaba, who's, um, for folks who don't know, she's an abolitionist who works with Project Nia and done a lot of work with youth, black youth in Chicago and in New York. And I've heard this, this phrase attributed to her, but I think she actually attributed it to somebody else that she picked it up from. Hope is a discipline. Uh, and I think I, I take that when I th- we think about the radical imagination that's required for where we want to go. And how and and like how hope is part of that. So she says it's work to be hopeful. It's not like a fuzzy feeling. Like you have to actually put in energy, time, and you have to be clear eyed, and you have to hold fast to having a vision. It's a hard thing to maintain, but it matters to have it to believe that it's possible to change the world. You know that we don't live in a predetermined, predestined world where like nothing we do has an impact. No, no, that's not true. Change is, in fact, constant, right? Octavia Butler teaches us we're constantly changing. We're constantly transforming. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily good or bad. It just is. That's always the case. And so because that's true, we have an opportunity at every moment to push in a direction that we think is actually a direction towards more justice. I love that. Toward life. Toward abolition democracy. Thanks. You've been listening to In the Belly of the Beast, and we will see you next time, or hear you next time, or you'll hear us next time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.